John chapter 12, text that my wife read for us. You know, going as far back as the 6th century BC, humans have just really been smitten with and absolutely loved theater. Theater. Theater throughout our history has been, been a means of satire, you know, making fun of the kind of received social conventions of society. Theater has provided comedic relief in the midst of pain, and tragedy and calamity. Theater, both on the stage and now streaming our Netflix accounts, serves as entertainment for the masses and a numbing agent for the masses. How many of you are watching The Crown right now? Just confess it. Raise your hands. How many? Oh, am I the only one into The Crown right now? You liars. You liars. <laughs> and here's the deal. Theater has been a primary means of education and cultural formation. Humans have long known the shaping power of a message and how it can shape an entire people group when it's conveyed by gifted actors dressed in costumes, using props, telling a story from a stage. Take, for example, this idea of listening to an English professor or a psychology professor talk about the highs of human love and the lows of human conflict in comparison to the very, very different experience of entering into the emotional highs and the tragic end as you're actually weeping as you watch Romeo and Juliet partake of the poison and die. You see, there's something about just listening to a lecture and information, and then there's something about entering into the story via a stage and actors. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing here in John chapter 12 in our passage this morning. This section, traditionally entitled The Triumphal Entry, this is a masterful piece of theater on the part of Jesus. Jesus, as a master communicator, he was doing social satire for his onlookers. Jesus was connecting with his audience through more than just mere transfer of information. What Jesus was doing as he approached Jerusalem on a donkey, at the time that he approached Jerusalem, was he was educating all the masses, and he was making a very clear and very specific declaration. And he intended, through this act of theater, to shape a specific community. He intended his onlookers to go forward and act and look more like him. It's why he did what he did at the beginning of Holy Week. That's all we're going to be doing for the morning here on Palm Sunday. We're simply going to return to the theme of John, reminding you guys that the whole gospel theme of John is come and see. Come and see Jesus. And so we're just going to spend 30 minutes here looking into Jesus' character, the way he entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, and why he entered in that way. And what we want to do is we want to see who he is and allow our lives to be shaped by the way that he lived his life. Does that sound good? Okay. I know it's warm. I need you guys to super lean in here for the first 10 minutes of this. And this is why. I might even invite you, if you're comfortable, you don't have to do this. But as I walk through some of the imagery and the scenery of this passage, it might help you to even close your eyes. It is so important for you to see what Jesus did in your mind's eye, to see his brilliance, to actually get the impact of his message, because the way that he ordered and structured this is really what has the transforming power. So this thing was so important. This, this, this moment in Jesus's life, it was so impactful that all four gospel authors actually highlight this particular story. So we're going to be drawing from all four gospel authors. 
Jesus chose to enter Jerusalem at this ultimate tinderbox moment. Jesus, as he approached Jerusalem, was intentionally lighting a match in a box of political and social dynamite. (laughs) It was Passover. This was the timing. And Josephus, he was an ancient Jewish historian, he tells us that at this time, the city population of Jerusalem would have been overflowing with upwards of like 2.7 million pilgrims. So imagine a small town setting, 100, 150,000 people, and now there's 2.7 million people overflowing the city gates. It's complete chaos. And it was into this setting that Jesus chose to enter into Jerusalem. Now these crowds, this 2.7 million people, they represented all sorts of walks of life. There were Orthodox Jewish people. There were the curious onlookers and observers there just to watch the festivals and all of the funny people. There were mocking cynics. There were political opportunists. There were civil insurgents. In other words, this crowd was a mixed bag of every walk of life that you can possibly imagine. And as the crowd gathered in Jerusalem, the air was ripe with this religious fervor and expectation. There was like a growing political tension and civil unrest. If you can just think about what the last year has been like for us in the political conversation, in the conversations that we've had around our dinner tables, multiply that by a thousand times over as Jesus is now getting ready to enter into Jerusalem. The Jews for centuries, they had been a non-compliant people under Roman occupation. And so intermittently zealots and upstarts, they would rally these rebellious coups continuously. And so everybody would be on edge as the city is overflowing and there's all these different walks of life. And is there going to be a rebellion? Is there going to be an upstart? Is somebody going to be stabbed? Is there going to be a fight that breaks out? It was very, very intense, this particular moment. The stories about Jesus had been circulating throughout Asia Minor and particularly around Galilee as he approached Jerusalem on his journey. Some, as Jesus had been performing his miracles and giving these somewhat kind of contrarian populist teachings that were so contrary to what the religious elite of his day taught, he had drawn these huge crowds to himself. And so news was spreading like him, like, about him like wildfire. And some people were becoming utterly devoted to him. They were discerning who he was and they were committing their life to him. Other people, they were just kind of curious They were just kind of keeping him at arm's length. They were watching and observing and listening. Others were confused. I don't know who he is. I think he's maybe a charlatan. Maybe he's not a charlatan. Maybe he is somebody I should follow. Maybe he's not somebody I should follow. But for many, and this is what's so crucial about this scene, for many, they believe that Jesus was the beginning of the end of their oppression. They believe that Jesus was the beginning of the end of all of the Roman occupiers. And so they were looking to him for deliverance. And then there was a small subset who were so severely offended by him that they were angry and they were plotting his assassination. So everybody have this imagery in your your minds. It's into this political chaos. It's into this kind of religious zealotry that Jesus chose in a very specific way to make clear that he was what some were most hoping for and what others were most fearing. fearing. Namely, Jesus declared himself to be the true king of everyone and all things at all times and all places in this moment. (laughs) 
He chose this most radical kind of tinderbox, social, political place of dynamite to walk in, light a match, drop it, and say, I rule all of this. I'm over all of this. I'm what you've been waiting for. I'm what you fear. He was such a, I don't know, just such a tremendous communicator. He was such a provocateur. He was just landing this bomb right in the middle of Jerusalem with the way that he particularly approached Jerusalem. And that's why the stage was so important and his props were so important. Just keep tracking with me now. Stay with me. This climate that we're in, this crowd that we're in, this intense moment that we're in. Jesus making this huge declaration and the way he did it was his stage and his props. The stage was specifically Passover. If you're not familiar with Passover, Passover was a millennia-long feast held by Orthodox Jews to remember and celebrate and give sacrifice. They would sacrifice animals. The high priest would take a lamb into the Holy of Holies, sacrifice that lamb for the atonement of the sins of the people of Yahweh. And so Passover was a time of lament. Passover was a time of repentance. Passover was a time of sobriety. And Passover was a time of sacrifice. And it was this stage that Jesus chose to make his kingly announcement. And he did it for a very specific reason. By making his kingly announcement, Jesus was also saying, I'm also the high priest. I'm not only the Messiah King that you've been waiting for, but I'm the high priest that truly represents the people. And beyond that, Jesus was pointing to the sacrificial nature of his rule. And this is so key. By doing this right at the moment that sacrificial lambs were being sacrificed and Jesus is now riding up the temple mount, he was saying, I am not coming to crush. I'm coming to be crushed as your king. The stage of Passover highlighted that Jesus' way of doing power was going to be categorically different than every king who had ever ruled on this planet in history or in the future to come. And then the primary prop that Jesus chose to amplify this message into the chaos of the crowds, that he would be a sacrificial high priest king making atonement for the sins of his people to make them one with God. The primary prop he used to amplify that message was a wee little baby donkey. I don't know why I just said it like that. That's just what came to my mind. Just a little, a little baby donkey. Now, Matthew, in his gospel, Matthew tells us that Jesus very specifically instructed his disciples. He said to his disciples as they were approaching Jerusalem, go and find a man and tell him that the Lord has need of this little baby donkey. It was like this kind of super secret spy code word that Jesus had set up with somebody in Jerusalem. So his disciples go in, they use the code word, the Lord has need of this wee little donkey. I don't know why I'm going down this path. <laughs> And so they go and they obey. And Jesus was, he was specifically doing this so that he could embody what John quotes here in John chapter 12, which is a promise from Zechariah 9.9. The prophet Zechariah, millennia before, centuries before, had said, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. 
So Jesus was specifically embodying this, this prophecy, and he was orchestrating his arrival into the chaos, into the tinderbox, into the social and political dynamite of men's powers colliding with one another, human power trying to usurp human power. Jesus specifically wanted his entrance into Jerusalem to look a specific way so that his declaration of kingship and high priestliness and sacrifice would be understood and received in a specific way. Understand this, and we all are very familiar with this. Kings would not ride lowly beasts like baby donkeys, especially if they were riding into a city that they were going to conquer. Kings would ride mighty war horses. They rode animals that would put them above the masses. They would ride animals of tremendous strength and valor and, and terror-inducing. And instead, Jesus chooses this humble lowly, kind of goofy, baby donkey. I've got to be honest, every time I do imaginative prayer, like close my eyes and try to live into, my te into the text and like live it out in my mind, I see Jesus approaching the donkey and the donkey is always Shrek's donkey. <laughs> and the donkey's always like, we're gonna make waffles as Jesus is walking up to him. <laughs> and now that I've completely ruined this passage for you, we can all go home. In one sense, even though that is so comical, this idea, Shrek's donkey, Jesus riding Shrek's donkey, Jesus was doing a very sophisticated piece of social satire here. We need to catch this. We need to see what Jesus' message was to his people. Jesus was saying by choosing this little lowly donkey, this comical, silly beast, upon which no noble king would ride in to conquer a city. Jesus was saying, you think power comes through war horses and humans being crushed by other humans? That's silly. That is silly. Here's what the creator of the universe thinks about your power plays as I ride in on Shrek's donkey. You're comical. Your empires are comical. Your ways of power and crushing and usurping and beating and oppressing, they are laughable in the eyes of God. Lamentable and laughable. This social satire was so sophisticated on the part of Jesus. He was following through with the words of the psalmist in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, the psalmist said, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. And so here, the one enthroned in heaven, soon to be, laughed at them as he comically wrote in on this little silly donkey, satire, saying, this is silly. All the ways that you exercise power, humans, it's silly. So this donkey and Jesus on the donkey is like prophetic mockery. And we should all take note. He thinks our personal power plays are silly. Our conniving, our striving, our usurping, our working, our oppressing. He looks at it and he says, that's silly. And I truly, I, I, I know this seems so silly, but I think Jesus is saying, would you rather make waffles <laughs> than war with one another? I don't want to draw out the Shrek analogy too much, but I'm being kind of serious. I think Jesus on the donkey is saying, stop your wars. Stop your wars. And learn how to just love each other and eat together and be one with one another. 
And I also want you to see and never forget as you're meditating in this passage that Jesus was specifically doing that to shape his community. This wasn't only education. This was also community formation. When Jesus rode in on a donkey, he intended that all of us, including us today in modern San Diego, would do power in the way that he did power. That we would do authority and hierarchy the way that Jesus did authority and hierarchy. Keep tracking with me. I know this is dense. Just stay with it. Stay with it. As Jesus approached the city, these crowds, they were laying out palm branches down at his feet, and they were shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. These crowds being lit by the dynamite, by the fire, by the match that was Jesus. These crowds, they're quoting these, these lines of ancient victory, victory from the Hebrew Psalms. And they're, they're literally declaring, Jesus, you're the victor. You're the true king. And the palm branches are so important. We don't really have record in the Hebrew Bible of using palm branches to bring praise to kings. But what we do have is a history of why they would be laying palm branches. Stick with me. The palm branches were a very specific symbol of victorious Jewish nationalism. Victorious Jewish nationalism. That's what those palm branches represented. About two centuries before this moment, before the triumphal entry, a man, a Jewish man, a Hebrew man named Simon of Maccabee, Simon the Maccabee, he drove these Syrian forces that had taken over Jerusalem. He achieved this great military victory, an impossible military victory, actually. He drove the Syrians out of Jerusalem, and as he was coming into the city, the crowds that had been delivered by Simon the Maccabee, they were singing his praises, and they had these palm fronds that they were laying at his feet. So for 200 years now, in the collective imagination of the Jewish people, when Messiah returned, the Messiah of Zechariah 9.9, he would come in and he would victoriously, in a warlike way, deliver the Jerusalem people. And with palm fronds, they would declare that they had been delivered. Those palm branches, they represented for the Jewish people that Jesus was going to return them to their national, their cultural, their ethnic, and their religious state. They would be given control, once again, of all the things that their particular group held near and dear. Most scholars and commentators agree that Jesus actually chose this donkey specifically to kind of dispel the Jewish nationalistic fervor that had risen up around him. Jesus, he, he very intentionally chose the donkey to ride into Jerusalem to present himself as a king of peace, not a king of war. Jesus actually refused, if everybody could just listen to these words so carefully, our king refused, he absolutely refused to reinforce the political and the nationalist aspirations of a fallen people by riding on a war horse and stirring up insurrection against Rome. He wouldn't do it. Jesus was embodying Zechariah 9.9, and he was saying, can you read here what the promise was? The king would come on the colt of a donkey, 
not on a war horse. He was forcing Jewish people to look at their Bibles and say, maybe it's not saying what we think it's saying. Maybe it's saying Messiah will come and not be a warmonger, but a man of peace. And Jesus refused, though there was so much populist kind of energy behind his preaching. There was so much intrigue and so much kind of zeal and political power behind who he was to usurp and overthrow Rome. Jesus would not be taken, he would not be taken hostage by the political strategies and the power plays of human authority structures. And so how do we make the leap from 2,000 years ago, Jewish nationalists, Jesus on a donkey to modern day San Diego sitting under tents out here in South Park. We all, at the turn of the year, saw the evils. We saw the virtual collapse or apparent collapse of our democratic ideals. And within the headlines, in almost every headline I was reading, were the evils of Christian nationalism. Now, before anybody gets up offended and, and walks away, just stick, stick this part through. Just stick this part through. Just listen carefully. And I want us to listen through the lens of Jesus on a donkey. So after December's Jericho March in Washington, and then a, a, essentially a mob of Trump supporters, most of them, or many of them, bearing Christian signs and symbols. You can look at the imagery of the storming of the Capitol, and there are Bibles being waved. There are Christian flags being flown over that violent moment, rioting and storming there on January 6th. And then you can look at Jesus on a baby donkey, <laughs> riding in during the scene of Passover with sacrificial lambs being sacrificed. And it serves as this, I think, firm prophetic critique and rebuke of any sort of violent nationalism on the part of God's people in Jesus' name. I don't think it can do anything less than that. Please hear me through and please if there is offense being taken, we can talk further about these things, but you have to at least at the, at the bare minimum come to a place where you say, there is a disconnect between someone waving a Bible, overseeing the violent insurgents of a democratic capital, waving a Bible within which that Bible actually has a man who says, turn the other cheek and pray for your enemy. There, there's somewhere... If you're throwing a fist and then holding up a Bible in the name of that individual, Jesus, there's, at the very least, there's a, there's a disconnect. There's a disconnect there. And it's why we as the Christian community, not red conservative community, not left liberal cons, uh, community, not political community, we as the kingdom of God people, we come and we approach this third way. And so we look at our political discourse and we look at our political activity from this lens of Jesus himself. And so at the baseline, though nationalism itself and even Christian nationalism is a hotly debated term, I fully recognize that, at the baseline, throwing a fist and then waving a Bible over the top of that cannot be congruent. It can't be congruent. So we have to work from that place. And of course, we would never say, oh yeah, we know the depths of the hearts of people that were involved in that type of behavior. 
No matter where we are on, this, on the political spectrum, far left, totally agreeing with everything I'm saying right now, far right, uncertain about what I'm saying right now, it, does, it doesn't matter. The theater of Jesus' triumphal entry, it just stands in stark contrast to the way that that event unfolded. And I'm telling you, that is just one tiny, tiny, tiny little piece of a much more macro message that's at hand in Jesus because the triumphal entry deals with a larger point. The triumphal entry actually rebukes all forms of fallen power, right and left, all forms of oppression. The triumphal entry prophetically critiques every point and place where humans command and demand and overwhelm by violence and force. Friends, we are Bible people here at Neighbors. If you're new, we are, we, we believe the book. We believe what it says, every single word of it. Therefore, we believe that beyond the regimes of men, there is a spiritual regime. Beyond the oppressive empires of humans, there is an oppressive spiritual regime ruled by this diabolical force. Satan, the devil, the serpent in the grass in the Garden of Eden, Leviathan and the prophets. He is this ruler of chaos. And he is all about instigating the power plays of humans. And his goal is to crush us and confuse us and have us devour one another. You know, the tragic Atlanta and Boulder shootings of recent. They just serve as these terrifying reminders at how deceived humans, how far they will go. And we see that the satanic regime of broken power, his desires for humans to live in terror, terror, constant terror, and he wants to paralyze us with cowering fear. And so what are we to do? We look at Jesus and the triumphal entry as a blueprint. And here's what I mean. We don't see Jesus as some soft-spoken, timid, cowering person as he approaches Rome, the most powerful empire on the planet. What we see is a lamb slain and a lion roaring in a simultaneous moment, God on a donkey. And you, Christian, I, follower of Jesus, we together, the community of Jesus followers, something categorically different than right, left, power, empire, something categorically different in this world, we are called no less to this lion-lamb presentation of human existence. What we see in Jesus and his approach to Rome is he did not cower before the empire and the oppressive forces. Jesus didn't shake in his boots before his Jewish opponents who were so aggressively planning his assassination, but he also did not meet like force with force. He did not meet violence with violence. And so in Jesus's nonviolent approach, he was not only resisting the regimes of fallen humans, he was actually conquering the malevolent spiritual regimes that are behind them. Do you see that bigger picture in what's happening here and what happens in the church when we put this as the blueprint for our lives? We do not cower as Christians. We don't cower before the forces that are opposing us. But we never meet force with like force. It is not the way of Jesus. We cannot, we must not play into Satan's hands, his strategies to have humans devour one another. We stand in the midst of all of that, doing power differently. 
And so in every single relationship, at the macro level of how we understand sociology and nations and economy, all the way down to the micro levels of our most personal relationships, we must do power the way that Jesus did power. This blueprint for us of Jesus's triumphal entry, it teaches us how to do business. Where we, as employees, we're not trying to control and take down our employer with complaining and grumbling and doing just the minimal amount and then just trying to get out of work as fast as we can. No, we approach our employers with hearts to serve Jesus. And when we are unseen, we're doing more work for the sake of the kingdom in that workplace. And as employers, this blueprint of the triumphal entry teaches us we don't oppress, misuse, and abuse our employees. If anything, more vacation time and overpay for them. Of course there has to be performance. Of course. I lead an organization. I understand how this works. But from a Christian perspective, the blueprint is one of tenderness and carefulness and overdoing benevolence. This blueprint for us, it teaches us that in friendship, we approach our friends seeking their flourishing to care for them. We're not trying to take control of our friend to get all of our emotional needs met, which is maybe one of the greatest tragedies of modern, modern friendship. In the church community, in the church community, we come to the church community to contribute to the church community with humility. We don't approach a church community demanding, coming in with our war horse saying, meet my needs. <laughs> we, in, in race relations, when we look at the pain that we have seen exhibited, not just over these last couple years, but throughout the history of the United States and really throughout the history of humanity as one human being oppresses another human being, the blueprint of Jesus tells us, get off your war horse, stop justifying what's right, what's wrong, and just learn to listen to other human beings and recognize that there is pain that maybe you haven't experienced that they have. It's a gentleness, do you see? It's a, it's a ceasing with the words. It's a stopping. It's trying to listen more and say less for the sake of the baby donkey making a way for us to eat waffles together, right? In gender relations, we recognize that there has been inequality. And so in gender relations, we have to give pause and we have to respond, not with a pendulum swing, but with wisdom and with measured prudence, especially in conservative Bible-teaching churches like Neighbors Church. We have to wrestle long with these things before we war against something. Guys, in our political conversations, you know, we try to understand the other side before we persuade them of our own, if ever. <laughs> Maybe one of the greatest disciplines for modern Christian political discourse is to learn the practice of <laughs> Some of us feel like our heads are going to explode whenever I do that, huh? I know I do. It is a great practice. In marriage, the triumphal entry is a blueprint for us, wherein we find ourselves literally going into the marriage, not for you to fulfill me, not for you to satisfy me, though those are part and parcel of marriage, especially in the beginning. We go into marriage to die for our spouse, to die for our spouse. And so at the end of the day, the Christian community in the, midst of, in the midst of Jerusalem, political insurgence, religious zealotry, complete chaos, the masses at each other's throats. The Christian community, we trust, 
We obey the Father. We let him vindicate. We don't get back. We don't exercise our wrath. We don't oppress and dominate. We absorb the wrong done against us for the sake of the one doing the wrong. We turn the other cheek. We pray for and we love our enemies. And in every way, though it may look and feel weak, though it looks and feels weak, Christians, we learn to live our lives riding a donkey, not a war horse. Whatever that means to you right now in the spirit, Soak in that for a time. Meditate in that for a time. As you enter into the political chaos and insurgency, the social dilemmas and the pain of this current moment, what does it look like for you to ride in on a donkey no matter what place you come from culturally, politically, ethnically, gender-wise, sexually? How do you ride through this life on a donkey if you're following Jesus? And to put Jesus on a war horse, that's a different text that's not in the Bible. Jesus' power, and we're going to wrap this up right now. Jesus' power was displayed in an old Bible word. It's the word meekness. The word meekness. Meekness is strength under control. It's power held back. Let me just lay out this scene for you guys real briefly. One of my favorite scenes in all of the movies, in every movie I've ever seen, one of my favorite scenes is in the first Lord of the Rings. Hope you guys remember this scene. Little Bilbo. Little Bilbo is getting ready to, to go out and take the ring of power, and he's getting ready to go on his journey. This is not the Hobbit. This is the first Lord of the Rings, so don't get him confused. And in the scene, he's getting ready to go and, and leave, and he's going to leave the ring with Gandalf, the wise one, right? But the ring of power is exhibiting this influence on Bilbo. And so he's like trying to leave and he's got the ring in his pocket and Gandalf's like, Bilbo, where's the, he's like, oh yeah, I do have the ring right here. And then as the ring exerts more power on Bilbo, he kind of gets more agitated. You know, the little hobbit with this great wizard and he's just sitting there like getting more and more mad. And what's interesting is up until this point, Gandalf, the wizard, he's only been portrayed as like this kind of mischievous, harmless old man. He likes to light off fireworks for the little kid, hobbits, and probably smokes a little bit too much Shire pipe weed, the whole thing. <laughs> and yet in this moment in this moment little Bilbo's getting more and more and he's what you want my ring you can't have my ring and then in this this great scene I love the way that the director did this all of a sudden the room goes dark and and the the wizard this mischievous harmless little old man all of a sudden gets bigger and he takes up the whole room he's now towering Bilbo Baggins his voice gets booming don't take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks I'm not trying to rob you I'm trying to help you and he gets very small in that moment and you just see Bilbo like you see Bilbo Tolkien in the way that he displayed the scene in the actual books it was even more intense well if you want my ring you just say so, cried Bilbo, but you won't get it. I won't give away my precious, I tell you. His hand strayed to the hilt of his little small sword. Gandalf's eyes flashed. It will be my turn to get angry soon, he said. If you say that again, I shall. Then you will see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. Gandalf the Grey uncloaked. Mischievous, fun-loving, firework lighting off, shireweed pipe smoking. <laughs> Gandalf the Grey, harmless, but uncloaked, 
the wizards of the Tolkien universe, they were these infinitely powerful creatures. And yet they clothed and cloaked themselves in the tininess of humility and fun-loving mischievousness. Woodland creature wizards, Gandalf the Grey, and in this crucial moment, don't do this or you will see the fullness of who I am. Meekness. You see, Jesus approaching, Jesus approaching Jerusalem on a donkey, he's Gandalf the Grey cloaked. Do you see this? He is, he is infinite power clothed in the deepest humility. He is strength beyond measure cloaked to come and save his people. And so as all of the humans around him, like little Bilbo, strive for the ring of power, you won't take that ring of power from me. He came not to conquer them with violence, but he came to actually absorb the evil into himself. And we do have the hope. Gandalf uncloaked, Jesus uncloaked, he's coming again. As Bible people, we believe that one day he is going to return. We're told he's riding in upon the clouds and he will establish his reign and we will see the infinite majesty far beyond Tolkien's wizards and the Lord of the Rings universe. Far beyond anything we can ever imagine, we will see the uncloaked, unclothed, magisterial power of King Jesus ruling over all of humanity. And that is what we celebrate here on this Palm Sunday. We now are looking forward to, but until then, we ourselves are indwelt by God, by the Holy Spirit. What that means for you, Christian, which by the way, just means little Jesus. Christian was a derogatory term in the book of Acts. Look at all the little Jesuses. Look at all the little Christians. What that means for you is that we now, are a community of Gandalf the Greys. We now are indwelt by this infinite power. We now are seated in the heavenlies with our king, awaiting his return. The empires have been crushed. The king reigns. He has ascended. He is alive. And you and I have eternal security and power. And so we walk about our days riding our donkeys, cloaked in humility and gentleness and kindness, peace offerings and peacemakers and sacrificial givers to a world that has gone awry. We have not come to rob this world. We are here to help this world. And in all these things, St. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so as we come to communion this morning, may the imagery of Palm Sunday just fill your brains with maybe a smirk on your face when you think about this peasant, car a peasant carpenter, <laughs> a ragtag peasant carpenter approaching the most powerful empire in the world on a donkey May it just make you smile and may you hear the Lord of the universe say, all the ways of human power are comical. They're just silly, futile. But may it also shape your soul this week. As we come to communion this week, may your souls, may our souls, may this blessed tiny little mustard seed of a community called Neighbors Church, a community shaped by the Bible, who look at the promises of Zechariah 9.9 and we say, oh, the way we're doing our Christianity doesn't really line up with the way Jesus did his. May we repent. May we just steadfastly step into these places of gentleness and kindness. Not cowering before what's coming. Not being doormats. 
but riding through lives on donkeys, not forcing our way, not overpowering, not oppressing, listening. And maybe the greatest act of Christian practice is to silently absorb the wrong of the wrongdoer because we actually love the wrongdoer. Consider that as we come to communion. Where one has wronged you, what would the Jesus Christ who indwells you, how would he love them? How would he pray for them? How would he die for them? This is the way of the church in this next generation. I'm telling you, this is the way of Christianity in this next generation. Gone are the days of us having cultural power. We are being pushed to the margins, which means we will be a people saturating like leaven in the loaf, virtually unseen, but just raising the saturated culture up to the wisdom of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus. And until he comes, we wait and we pray in fervency and we never lose hope that right now in this time of communion, we could close our eyes and we could, the Bible says, open our eyes and it could all change in the, as St. Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, in a glimmer of a moment, everything shifts in this universe. Father, I just trust, I trust now, Holy Spirit, that you've done the work and are doing the work for our community, for each of us, as we think about how we do power in relationships, how we do power in politics, how we do power in society, how we do power in business. Lord, I trust you. And I am praying in earnest that we would be a people who who get off of our war horses. As I come to communion this morning, Lord, I just want to confess I ride a war horse so often. <laughs> I just want my way in relationships. I want my way in the city. I want my way. Help me, Jesus, to trust you enough to humble myself. And, and I pray as well, Lord, during our communion time that we would, we would have a sense that we are indwelt by infinite power and so we need not fear that the kingdom that you so delightfully give to your children is secure. We don't have to fight for our own kingdom. We don't have to war for it. And so may religious liberties be lost in the West. Absolutely. May Jesus and the King be lost. Impossible. May the wars of men tear asunder the societies that we have lived in for centuries now. Absolutely. May the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Without question, it's coming. Purify your church. Purify your people. Let us be a people who live under the ethic of Jesus, the holiness of Jesus, the wisdom of Jesus. And may the cross be our centerpiece. The cross is what brings us together. We need not war with one another at the foot of the cross. The king has absorbed all the wounds that we have inflicted on each other. And out of that, Lord, may we find kindness, gentleness, humility, and peace overflowing one unto another. Oh, God, do this in your church. Spirit, do this in your church. All we can do as a people is trust. Wait and let you, let you do in the world what you will. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we all stand for a time of song?
And then my wife will come up and lead us in a communion meditation and point of remembrance as a community.